and welcome to this FT Advisor in Focus CPD podcast, where we will be discussing how advisors can meet a consumer duty's fair value outcome. The FCA's consumer duty, which has taken effect for new products on the 31st of July, require firms to ensure that customers receive fair value. This includes offering suitable products that meet the customer's needs, are reasonably priced and monitored for the value they provide over time. But the FCA is clear, value is not the same as price. So what is fair value and how can advisors prove they're providing it? With me here in the studio to discuss this today are consultant Mel Holman from Compliance and Training Solutions and Paul Young, Head of Business Consultancy at Quilter. And joining us remotely are consultant Bradley Northrup from Alpha FMC and Kusal Ariyavansa, who is an advisor at Appleton Gerard. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Hi. Hello. Um, for those listening, this podcast is CPDable. After listening to this podcast, you will be able to describe what fair value means, explain how advisors can provide fair value over time, and communicate how advisors can evidence fair value. Mel, Bradley, let's start with you. How does the regulator define fair value? Mel, you go first. Well, I suppose the starting point for this is to actually see what the FCA handbook defines value. So I'm going to read it out, a bit boring, but um, it, this is a rule and it does say what is value. And it says, the purposes of this outcome, value is the relationship between the amount paid by a retail customer for the product and the benefits they can reasonably expect to get from the product. And a product provides fair value where the amount paid for the product is reasonable relative to the benefits of the product. So if people are looking for a particular statement, if if you do this, it means you will deliver that, you know, value. You're not going to get a definitive statement. You know, that's as good as it's going to get. Mm-hmm. So now it's going to be a matter of, okay, we, if challenged, of course I provide value. Okay, well, where's the evidence to back that statement up? Mm-hmm. And that's the crux of it. Okay. And really, in my opinion, we're not going to get a real flavour of what the FCA says is good practice and poor practice. They've given a bit of an outline in their guidance, etc. But um, we're not going to really get to some really good nub, you know, examples until they start doing some more analysis, which will be after July this year. Mm-hmm. Okay, Bradley, what do you? What does value mean to you? Yeah, I think I think to that point. Um, sort of our, our view on, on this working with, with firms in the market is is actually the regulatory definition on fair value is, is, is quite simple. Um, so the, the consumer duty is there to set higher and clear standards of, of consumer protection uh, across financial services and to deliver good outcomes. Um, and, and part of that, firms undertaking fair value assessments as, as a way of demonstrating if, if the price uh, a customer pays for a product or service is, is reasonable compared to, to the benefits they receive. And, and that, that sort of value definition is, is, is quite quite clear and, and, and simple to, to understand and, and straightforward in terms of what the, the regulatory expectations are. However, in, in practice, I think this is sort of proving more challenging for firms to, to grasp when, when re- reviewing the value of their overall proposition. So, so for firms to industrialize the assessment of fair value has, in our view, from speaking with firms, taken more work and been more challenging than, than has been appreciated. But I think the regulatory definition is, is quite clear. It, it's just the application of that, which, which, which to the earlier points, is going to prove more challenging and, and take more time for firms to bed in. Mm-hmm. 
And Kuzal, speaking of grasping the definition, regulatory definition of fair value, do you do you feel that your firm knows what regulator want, wants when it comes to fair value? I think what they want is for advisors to be sensitive to evidencing what they're actually doing for their clients. In the past, people might have just given a statement of valuation and charged a particular fee, be percentage or fixed, just to give a percent uh, a, a statement of returns to an individual. That, in their opinion, and in term, in anybody's opinion, is not right. So this is where uh, they're expecting us to be hypersensitive. Sensitive, I would say, not hypersensitive. Mm-hmm. That's where I come from. I come from a logical point of view, looking at the rules and what everybody's saying and thinking, how can we be sensitive but not hypersensitive mm-hmm. to sensing value? Okay. And what does Quilter make of the FCA's definition of fair value? Um, I can give you my version of it um, <clears throat> because we come from very much a behavioural economics view and the, the challenge is that price and value perception is personal. Now, that means that you could throw this all away and say, how the heck are you going to measure it? Well, of course, the good news is is that by understanding key behavioural drivers, we are unfortunately very susceptible to key areas of, of similarity, depending on two different, different sort of life stages. So price is only an issue in the absence of value. But if you can analyse and think about where do typical clients sit in their demographic, what are their challenges? And then we've used, for example, our advisor delta formulas to say, typically a client in this area benefits from advice because of this, this and this to this percentages on an average basis. You get a first starting stab at what is the definition of fair value. But of course, the real definition of it for me is that the client makes a decision today that their future self doesn't come to regret. Because it's really hard to measure uh, the value piece um, when, when you've got the, the timescale horizon moving away because recency bias means we value things that have happened more recently. And you ask people about, you know, do you still value the TV you bought four years ago? What? I don't know. Can you remember how much it was? It, it, it disappears. But t- t- how much did you pay for it yesterday? They know. Mm-hmm. So there's a price issue and you can't help but link price and value. But there's far more to it. You know, the advisor Delta showed behavioral coaching actually adds a huge amount of value from reassurance when there isn't a product. The other thing to clarify on your question about the FCA and where Quilter at is the definition says product. Of course, what we mean is product being services, where mm-hmm. advice is the product. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where some people get confused. And it applies to mortgages and protection and investments. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mel, now, when it comes to a firm, an advice firm, providing or assessing fair value, what are the kind of things to bear in mind when it comes to giving advice? So when they're looking at putting together their value assessment, what do they need to be considering? When, when they are putting together the value yeah. the assessment of the of the value they provide so um wh- how we're talking through with firms is um to kind of like work out what is what is your baseline cost how's how much does it cost to run the firm and deliver the service um including you know fair fair remuneration for the directors you know pension contributions you need to take into account experience qualifications all that and um and I think, you know, some firms that we've spoken to have got a bit overwhelmed or got their knickers in a twist about, you know, does it mean we can't make a profit? Is that what the FCA driving at? The FCA saying we can't charge percentage charging? Um, 
And that's not the case. You know, it's in nobody's interest if the firm goes out of business because then that's not leading to a positive consumer outcome. So it's all about, you know, the rules say about what is reasonable and reasonableness comes through a lot. So it's... You know, arguably, is looking at, you know, we're making a profit, absolutely. We need to be investing into the company, but what is a reasonable profit to carry on? Um, the FCA published a dear CEO letter in January earlier uh, this year, and they're particularly concerned about clients are getting ongoing services that not do not meet their needs or represent value for money. Um, so it's really asking firms to challenge what is their service model and how they're charging. And as a result of that, we've had firms now looking at uh, putting in minimums, putting in maximums, really looking at their client segmentation. What is it they're actually offering and how much that costs? So that's a service offering. And then looking at how much, do you, um, how much do your charges compare against your peers. So um, cheap does not mean value. You know, you, you can get what you pay for. Um, but... Um, and so you're looking at the market, what is out there. Um, also getting client feedback. You know, that's got to be uh, taken into consideration. Do we get pe- uh, client attrition because they don't think they're getting value or paying too much? Um, do we get complaints about our fees and not getting service and things like that? It's got to be all thrown into the mix. Um Looking at performance of your portfolios, your, if you're using a DIM, how are they performing? Are they adding value? Because, you know, for a financial planning firm, you're not just looking at the charges, your advisor charges, you're looking at all the charges that the client is paying. So that's going to be advisor charge, platform, investments, DIMs, and each bit needs to be broken down as to does each bit provide value? And then overall, what is the cost and is that providing value? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, I mean, obviously the FCA has been clear that that the value is inherent in product and the product's features and um you know and perhaps some of those features like exit fees are problematic bradley what's um to what extent does an advice firm need to check value in products and which features would you kind of point to that might be problematic yeah i think um the the sort of the ongoing element of, of the value assessment is, is very important. Um, so as, as people have alluded to, value is not static and, and customers um, assess perceived benefits, which can often be very personal um, and, and they evolve throughout a, a client's sort of lifetime. Uh, so that's why it's essential that firms take a lifetime view of the customer and, and review and assess their service proposition, including how it aligns to, to the customer's changing needs and, and circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, there's part of that where it does link um, for particular segments as to the appropriateness of an ongoing advice service. And, and that's where we, we've seen a lot, a lot of thinking and work being done to, to ensure more appropriate client segmentation is in place. And I think that's where in, in the advice market, there's been a bit of a, a gap there over the last 10 years where, where not all firms have adopted a, an, an appropriate client segmentation model. And I think the consumer duty is driving that. So, you know, our, our view is that in, in many cases, the majority of the advice market and the customer needs being served are, are very much well aligned to an ongoing advice service. But, but there are sort of edge cases and, and different segments where I think more alternative um, mechanisms to eff- effectively and efficiently serve uh, some of the more broader mass market customers uh, with, with access to an alternative set of solutions and service propositions that, that might be more better delivered uh, 
through an alternative mechanism versus charging an ongoing advice fee when, when actually um, for, for certain client needs, circumstances and situations are not changing and, and evolving uh, frequently. Therefore, alternative models might be more appropriate. Kuzal, mm-hmm. cool. to what extent do you agree with the consultant's views and what's your strategy for providing value? Well, I mean, we can't disagree with the overall concepts. Uh, for, for if, if somebody comes to me, uh, the, the starting point is to say, what exactly are you seeking? And then it's up to me to find out w- what those underlying drivers are. Now, once we understand that, we can then ask them, what does good value or what is a good outcome for the individual? Assuming somebody just comes starting with a basic mortgage, they want a loan to buy a house. They don't want a full financial planning service. Now, you can introduce that concept because repaying the debt is an essential component of a financial plan. So rather than just providing a product, I look at the overall comprehensive service. Then you add on areas which address their underlying driving needs. It's essential for an advisor to understand those. And once you understand those, you can modify your service to suit that. So most people will come with a problem, say, wanting to invest a lump sum or wanting to retire with a certain goal. What is the actual driver for that? At what level? And if, if we can't really um, evidence what value we provide on an annual basis, something is seriously wrong because either it's wrong on a, a moral level or on a numerical level. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the regulator is coming in saying, guys, this it should have been done anyway in the past. You can't provide an ongoing service for somebody, charge them a percentage and just give a statement. So there are some people who come online to us who don't really need this ongoing advisory service. Mm-hmm. All they need is a multi-asset solution to be on a platform, a low-cost platform, and buy and hold. Because they don't, don't need an income, they simply need the money to grow. Now, we don't need to take an ongoing fee from them. Whilst other people who have ongoing needs, we do. And then how do we evidence that this is providing ongoing value? I do that twice a year. I meet all clients in January and July. And at each stage, we showcase what has happened in line with their original wants. Mm -hmm. What did they come for? What are we trying to achieve? What is the target rate in achieving that? And how far away are we from that? If we are within that range, if we are beyond it, why aren't you enjoying what you have? Mm-hmm. So there's far more levels than just a, a, a new number. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I was just going to add on to that. I think there's some really excellent points there. And, and sort of our view is financial planners are best placed out of any other actors in the market to really tailor their ser- service proposition to the needs of their client through having that intimate understanding of, of their needs. And I think that's what's really important here. Yeah. So, Paul, you wanted to um, add something here. Yeah, no, it really is driving um, purpose-based conversations and driving out the transactional planner because that's going to be harder and harder to justify your value against the compare the meerkats. Mm-hmm. 
which is exactly what's been said. Um, and that some of the pushback against not having an ad hoc service you're getting or we're getting is, yeah, but, you know, add those small funds, you know, £100 a month, £100 a year, add them all up, that's a lot of turnover. I said, well, actually, at the moment, most of the personal valuation models in the marketplace are EBITDA-driven or assets under management percentage. So by delivering a service which is far more focused, uh, your profitability is going to be up because you're no longer doing all your suitability and progress reports and, and all that sort of stuff. The client's life stage is actually saying, I don't need to see you every year. Your profitability goes up. Your turnover may not be as high, but actually your personal value, we've seen, actually increase when people have done exactly as, as we, others have described on this on this call. Mm-hmm. But this purpose-based thing is really pleasing, and I totally agree with Bradley as well, that the rise of the planner and the language that planners use as evidence already is all about, tell me what the purpose is, what's your timescales, what's the measure of success type of conversation. If you're still, if you're still at a planner who's in the, the cl- listening to the client in product when they say, oh, I just want to top my ice right, I just want to top up my pension, I just need a mortgage, if you don't take a step back and understand the drivers, then you're stuffed because I can't justify why you're charging X for just a simple ISA. Because you could do a whole load of other work, sense check their lifetime allowances and all that sort of stuff, and still end up with just an ISA. But in order to get to just an ISA, there's a whole range of stuff you do beforehand. If you, and if you don't do that, don't check the purpose out, you're really on a sticky wicket with proving value. Mm-hmm. And how does, how does Quilter plan to monitor value over time? So, yeah, we, we've, we've taken sort of a big data view on this, which is... Because we're quite lucky in the fact you've got an investment house, you've got a platform, you've got an advisory, you've got network, you can look at a lot of big data and say, what are the social norms in those typical demographics, using people like Experian, et cetera, to work out pricing and also what the typical solutions end up like. So there's an assumption that we've been doing it okay in the first place, which I think is a fair assumption, right? But if you take that assumption, you can get a pretty good demographical check of what are the fee ranges, total cost, and investment, that type of stuff, for example, in different demographics. And you can also spot any outliers as well. So, for example, a brand new young investor, would you expect EIS VCT? No, but you might. And so that's a negative target market. But actually, if it's a young professional, perhaps it is. But you find an easier way to, to look at, are people actually getting the right products and services in their demographic needs? So look at their advice characteristics, the vulnerabilities, and you can start chunking them that way. And you can use big data. And then you can say, let's, let's just check on outliers. The, uh, the the longer term, of course, you've got every year we go through. Um, obviously, you've got prod, etc. But this is going to be done every year. You've got that value assessment. We'll be checking social norm pricing. We'll be checking how the different bands are. We're looking for the outliers. But the real measure of success is is that behavioural science of are, are, can you help clients make decisions now that their future self doesn't come to, to regret. Because they may be really happy with everything today, but when they make down the pub says, well, why are you in Bitcoin five years ago? That's when it starts getting edgy, even though they're really happy. And if you benchmark your performance against expectations, not the market, then again, you've got a far better chance of delivering value. So answer your, answer your question. There's, a, there's some big data sets trying to look for outliers and also taking feedback from advisory firms and seeing where those trends are. Mm-hmm. So would you have somebody in place who monitor, monitors the big data on a regular basis? Oh, gosh, yeah. Absolutely, okay. yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, now, just moving on to evidencing, um, Kusal has already talked about this quite a bit, but um, Mel, obviously the FCA is clear, and this is one of the big things of consumer duty, that advisors will have to be able to evidence mm. that they are giving fair value. Um, how can a firm do that? So 
It's interesting. We've done some practitioner forums and people are saying exactly that. You know, we've got so much evidence. How do you bring it all together? And so what I've been saying to our firms is you've got to do your research. You've got to do your analysis. And we just say put it all into a folder. And then um, we have put together a document, which is basically the statement, the value statement. And it would uh, say to firms, look, this, the FCA can demand this at any time. This is not a document that you can whiz up in 24 hours. You, you've got to do the grunt work. Um, so to put together a document that says, this is what our research, the conclusions of our research in each area at the end of it, it's like we provide value because of X, Y, Z. We've made these adjustments. This is where we feel, feel we are. And then, of course, um, so that would be the statement. And it's, it's, it's making sure you've got all your research and evidence and everything in one folder that you can easily refer to in, in a logical way with this one document that summarises everything. That's what we were saying to firms. The other thing we have said, obviously, is that over over the year, over the over the year, if you're doing like a fund switch, then obviously each uh, apart from just getting the target market statement and doing the due diligence on that fund, you also then need to look at the value of that, the value assessment of that fund, um, look to see how that impacts the overall portfolio, um, and then you have to update your value assessment accordingly. So, um, so it is once we've got this, you know, we have got this one document once a year, but it will be changed if you're doing any fund switches, if you're doing any different dim providers if your platform due diligence suggests that we got to introduce somebody else so it all feeds into your prod you know there's it's not just one document you're updating now there's a, a series of documents that you have to constantly keep updated and monitoring and reviewing as well mm-hmm. okay so is the um would you say the value assessment is the most important part in the um in the evidencing piece oh gosh i wouldn't say the most important part is a fundamental part it's the most grottiest part i think mm-hmm. I think it's the hardest part that people have had to get their head around. Okay. Uh, Bradley, did you want to um, add anything to um, the uh, evidencing question? Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, so we, we, we did a, a survey with financial advisors recently where we, we found that about 80% of advisors either use satisfaction sort of metrics or complaints metrics as, as the basis for measuring value. And, and we believe that's that's going to be far too simplistic and, and quite simply, the, the concept of the clients not left us or complained, therefore they must value what we do, is, is no longer going to be a, a, an acceptable benchmark to, to lean on. So w- one firm that we have seen doing this well is is by collecting data on the, the client experience that they've delivered to that client throughout the year. So they're collecting how many touch points have we had with that client, how helpful were those touch points, how many questions did we help them with, what were all the tangible and intangible benefits we delivered to them throughout the year. And all of that gets logged into their back office system or, or sort of automated. And then they play that back to the client at the annual review as this tailored MI and insight alongside the question of, did, did we deliver a fantastic service to you as a client? So, so they don't just get a valuation statement at the end of the year. They, they get a truly personalized value assessment. And, and I think that's where the sort of the market needs to go with this. So in, instead of thinking of, fair value statements as a as a sort of a templated thing that goes on the shelf it's how can they evidence that to the sort of end customer in in a tailored way Mm -hmm. so it's about being proactive and giving it to the client rather than like as you said keeping on a shelf in case the regulator comes knocking absolutely and it's such a good opportunity 
um, not just to sort of meet the regulatory requirements, right? But but to actually use that as as a way to showcase just all the great work that advisors do. I think the, the problem is is it's it's often just not uh, well sort of logged or documented and in in a format that can then be played back to sort of evidence that value has been delivered. So if you can get some of that that data and, and get your system sorted, there's some really good ways in which you can start to showcase to, to clients just how helpful you are beyond uh, uh, providing access to sort of uh, products and, and all the sort of the wider benefits you deliver for your proposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to add to that, actually, because um, j- just from the behavioural perspective, just by using a survey biases results. How many questions? I've I've done experiments just reordering the the questions to get a different answer. Um, So what we've been really proud about is we've been doing some behavioural research with clients, both advised and non-advised, with eye tracking software, and also with quick cognitive tests about what have they respect, what got their attention, and what do they understand, what do they get, and we've changed that to wash through the behavioural brochures, the the sales aids as you used to call them in the old days, Uh, even tracking working with people like Dynamic Planner where clients' eyes go on benchmark tests. Because what people say they like and actually what their attention is, what they remember is often two different separate things. So you, you actually can actually adjust the, the core material to show the evidence of that we're listening to you without actually asking you about, do you value our service? Oh, yeah, because you're biasing the question already. Mm-hmm. So by getting that insight and actually seeing what people really value, remember and understand, we get to change some of the core documents. You're not gonna, all you're trying to do is increase the chances of understanding. But what you but so that's that's sort of like a, a sort of fundamental grassroots level. But the the other thing about how you evidence it is the advisor delta triangle, which broke it into the value of advice being three things, with its you know how you hold the asset or liability number one, the solution enhancement you get because you saw an advisor rather than going and trying to do it yourself number two, and then the behavioural coaching of staying vested and don't fiddle with it. You can put percentages. So we know that someone in their older life with lots of money at retirement gets a high delta, i.e. the difference that advice makes because we stop them making crap decisions and taking their money from the wrong pots in the right times. But actually you can get a really high uh, delta difference at younger life stages, but for completely different reasons, things like child tax allowances and that type of stuff. Um, Often if if a, a partnership has one earning higher rate and one basic or one basic and nil, you can actually do more around how you hold the asset, especially with recent CGT laws, how you hold the asset has more net impact than any large DAR fund manager doing returns. So you can really sort of get a template of, look, people like you, we tend to say roughly, this is the type of value we get. But let's personalise it. As Bradley was saying, let's talk to you about how this relates to you individually. And then you've got a quantification and also a set of expectations that you can manage around. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Kusal, did you want to um, add anything to evidencing? Yes, I think... Uh one of the questions just mentioned there uh, for these surveys just show how pointless most of the, these can be, which is, do you value our service? Mm-hmm. Uh, complete waste of time, in my opinion, these questionnaires. Um, what I what I would rather say to somebody, remember I meet everybody in January and July, I always ask in January, how did we help you last year? And let them articulate what they think the help was. Mm-hmm. And you'll get in nearly all cases well, um, you know, I saved this much in tax or they won't say, oh, you got me a new pension product. You got me this or that. They'll always say, well, I felt really good when COVID hit and you could talk to me uh, that everything was going to be OK with regards to my investments because we're still on track. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and, a- then I, and I asked them, so how would you like me to help you this year? And the answer has always been, well, much more of the same. 
Nobody says, oh, I want you to transfer money from my GIA into my ISA. I want you to maximize my annual allowance and look at tax planning around various other products. So it's asking pertinent questions to individuals. They then give me answers about what they value. Now, if they then don't disclose things like the annual allowance planning, the tax savings, or the gifts to the children, if that has bypassed them, that allows me to then remind them and say, oh, by the way, here's a slide I prepared about the things we did. Uh, did you realize that just by this uh, migration of monies, we saved this much in capital gains tax and also uh, saved this much in annual allowance planning? And the gifts to the children, obviously, that removes it from the estate. Now, that's, in my opinion, that's really good to re-emphasize to them what exactly we do on an ongoing basis, which makes the qu next question, which is, how would you like us to help you this year? <laughs> really easy, because they do end up saying, well, <laughs> it's just like last year then. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about these surveys and behavioral stuff. I think the key behavior is, do you understand your client? And are you asking the right questions for them? And if firms aren't doing that, if advisors aren't doing that, why not? And that's probably what the regulator wants. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point about avoiding the yes, uh, no questions as well. How do you record these conversations? Personally, uh, all uh, discussions are digitally recorded. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Um, some really interesting ideas here. Um, thank you very much for joining me today. And thank you for listening. Please bank your CPD after answering the six questions in the article below. After listening to this podcast, you'll be able to describe what fair value means, explain how advisors can provide fair value over time, and communicate how advisors can evidence fair value. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.